Incomes are back. And so is All the Credit, PGIM Fixed Incomes monthly podcast series. From the latest trends to long-term perspectives, you'll get timely fixed income insights from leading economists, research analysts, and investment professionals. Whether you're new to bonds or a seasoned investor, tune in to All the Credit wherever you get your podcasts. This podcast is intended solely for professional investor use. Past performance is not a guarantee of future results. Pushkin. U.S. markets finished December with a bang and are starting January with a whimper. Stocks are down just about 1% in the few trading days we've had so far in 2024, with big tech leading the way down. Apple, for one, is down 5% after getting downgraded by some analysts. And the bond market is falling too. Yields have risen 12 basis points on the long end so far. Today on the show, we've got thoughts. This is Unhedged, the markets and finance show from the Financial Times and Pushkin. I'm reporter Ethan Wu here in my mother's closet in Sacramento, California. And on the other end of the line, all the way from New York, which I miss dearly, one financial commentator, Robert Armstrong. What are you looking at right now? What what she got in the closet, Ethan? Is it like linen? Is it like sheets or is it women's clothing or what, what are you looking at? It's mostly women's clothing. My mom likes reds and blacks, mm. I, I think, just judging by the, uh, the the color spectrum in the closet. Right on. I'm sure she's a woman of immaculate taste. Absolutely. Absolutely. I, I am, I think, uh, contractually and cosmically obligated to, to agree with that. <laughs> How was your New Year's? I had the most New York possible New Year's Day. Is that right? Yeah. I went to Coney Island. I did the polar plunge with my kids. Huh. And uh, then I went to Nathan's hot dogs and consumed a chili cheese dog. And then I rode the cyclone roller coaster. <laughs> then you get your official I'm a New Yorker card after you do that trifecta. Wow. Did you have any moments where you felt like you were going to throw up on the on the roller Almost coaster? the entire time all, in all three <laughs> steps. But that's irrelevant. It was, a, it was a good kind of nausea. Speaking of things that are plunging and or puking, uh, stocks, Rob. <laughs> yes. Uh, stocks. It's been just over two trading days here in the U.S. and stocks are down. Yesterday, it looked like they were going to be down about 2%. Today, they've gone up a bit more like 1%. But, you know, I think any way you cut it, it's been a bit of a damp squib so far this year, Mm. led especially by some of the big tech stocks. Apple so far this year down more than 5%. Uh, Not a great showing for for Apple and for, for big tech. At the same time, you know, bond yields nudging up a bit. We closed out 2023 with the 10-year yield falling. Now we're closer to 4% of about 12 bips so far this year. I don't think it's quite the start that market participants were expecting. No. And, you know, it's got us thinking about, you know, what, what should we be looking for in these markets to try to answer some of the questions we were left with in 2023? Okay, so a little tightening in the cost of long-term money. And I think that's going to be a huge theme for the year. Obviously, it's come down from its kind of near 5% highs. And while much of our attention and the attention of the market has been on the short end of the curve on what the Fed is going to do with its official policy rate. I think a lot of what happens in weeks to come and indeed for the rest of 2024 is going to revolve around what we see at the long end at 10 years and longer. 
Yeah, I mean, there was a period last year where I felt like most market participants had like a coordinated long-term yields freakout, yeah. <laughs> uh, where everyone was talking about, look at the deficit, look how huge it is, yes. inflation, it's not coming down easily. Yes. And then, you know, we crossed 5% one day on the on the 10-year yield, which was like, like, a, like a holy shit moment, right? Yes. And, you know, we've retraced more than a full percentage point from that you know, point crossing right. 5%. I hear you. But the other, the other thing to remember, though, is how far we are. So inflation, and I say this with mild exaggeration, is now back at its target-ish, right? Yeah. The 10-year yield is still 2 to 3% higher than it was in the pre-pandemic period, the post-financial crisis pre-pandemic period. So... Part of what is going on there at the long end is not captured in the discussion of inflation and, and the Fed's policy rate. There's, another, yeah. there's something else there that we have to talk about. That's a really important point that if we continue to get good inflation news for the rest of the year and the Fed declares victory and starts cutting, it's not clear that the tenure has that much more to fall. I mean, maybe, maybe a little bit, but uh, we're pretty close to, to, to target here. The, the, the latest inflation report. Uh, I think had a lot of people looking at uh, soft landing uh, on a six-month annualized basis. Core PCE inflation, which is uh, the Fed's kind of preferred target, it's at one point nine percent. That's that's quite good. I mean, that that's that's on target essentially. More and more people are just saying this is the soft landing. Yeah, you know, a month ago people were saying it looks like we're there. Now I'm talking to more and more people who say like, here we are, soft landing, done. Yeah, it's in, which makes the higher ten-year all the more interesting. There's another factor that goes into long yields, which got a lot of discussion last year, which is the fiscal outlook, right? What is government spending doing? Obviously, you know, bonds are issued by the government. They're pretty sensitive to what's going on with tax policy and government spending. Uh, and as the U.S. government is borrowing more and more at these kind of like record peacetime fiscal deficits, that some argue has pushed the long year up as investors, you know, demand more return for investing in government debt that's kind of swelling in supply. Yeah. I mean, I, I think that's the right way. You, supply is the key term here. The prosaic way to understand this, and I think the correct way to understand this in terms of supply and demand, higher government deficits equals more issuance of government bonds versus what all else being equal is a stable demand for said bonds. The price has to fall for those two to match, as it were. Right. Yeah. And and that means yields have to rise because, as we often have to write in our business, prices and yields move in opposite directions. <laughs> but the, here's the, the weird thing that I, I don't know if I totally get, Rob, is, you know, last year, again, at this kind of peak moment of fiscal freakout, there was a big increase in what's called the term premium, which is, you know, how much additional yield does a long term bond have to pay versus maybe a shorter term bond. And that grew pretty large a couple months ago last year, again, when we were all talking about deficits. But the term premium has basically totally vanished. Yes. And it's been so remarkable that it actually got mentioned in the Federal Reserve meeting minutes that were published just the other day, uh, you know, because all the Fed governors were like writing and talking about this again, mere months ago. Yes. And now it's totally vanished. I'll give you a theory which we heard yesterday, uh, we spoke with Bob McKell, who's the co-CIO of JP Morgan Asset Management, and he is kind of the biggest fixed income guru there at JP Morgan. And his view is everybody is in a complete panic because the government spent a lot of money during the pandemic, as it should have, by the way. 
But if you think back to prior historical episodes, the ability of the U.S. government to get back on solid fiscal footing is pretty impressive. He's been in the business for a long time. And he was talking about when he came in in the early 80s, he came into the business. Everybody said the U.S. government is never going to pay single digit yields Mm. on its debt ever again because the fiscal situation is a disaster. We're never going to have another balanced budget. Cats and dogs living together. It is chaos. But (laughs) but 10 years later or 15 years later, yields had collapsed. It was the Clinton administration. And by God, we had a balanced budget. So all the gloom and doom about the U.S. fiscal situation and the attendant hysteria about long-term bond yields may be a bit overstated. Rob, in this vein, talking about the fiscal picture and inflation affecting long-term yields, there's a related question that I think is very much live in these markets, which is the correlation between bonds and equities. And this Mm. is, I think, as close to a fundamental market relationship as you can get. Do bonds and equities travel together or do they travel in the opposite direction? And we want them, and importantly, we want them to travel in opposite directions, right? Because then the two parts of our portfolio, the bond part and the equity part, hedge each other nicely. So we can sleep well at night knowing that if our equity portfolio stinks, our bond portfolio will be doing well and vice versa. Yeah. And so it helps us reach the efficient frontier and maximize returns over time and lets us sleep better. Exactly. And if it's not true, if they are, if the correlation is positive, that entire investment formula is kind of defunct. Right. And that's what we saw in 2022 when bond equity correlation started to trend in a positive direction. And, you know, over the, the span of 23, we saw some concerning correlations uh, pop up. There's like a million measures of this and we can argue about which one to look at. But, uh, you know, one that that we looked at in the Unhedged newsletter was rolling two-year returns between the S&P 500 and long-dated treasuries. So that, mm. that's a very slow measure of correlation. It takes, uh, you know, 500 trading days into account. Um, and that turned positive for the first time in November 22 and stayed positive for most of 23. Uh, and, and again, the concern there is if you're, the returns on your bonds are doing badly at the same time returns on stocks are, that's not great. Nobody had very much fun in 2022. I think it's important to emphasize that the key factor in this relationship usually, and there's always confounding factors, but usually the key factor is inflation. Yes. And to simplify, neither bonds nor stocks particularly like high inflation. So when inflation is high or the risk of inflation is at the forefront of investors' minds, the probability that neither asset class will perform well rises dramatically. So the question we're facing right now is inflation at or close to target again, are we going to see that correlation go negative again in the way we want it to? One thing we've learned in the last year, right, is that when we were thinking about inflation and what it was going to do and how long it was going to last, we thought way too much about the 70s and early 80s Mm -hmm. and how inflation was very persistent then and how it was very unstable then and went up and down and hung around. And it may just be that the pandemic-related inflationary incident is not like that huge inflationary incident in the 70s and early 80s that captures so much of our imagination, right, that we think about so constantly. Maybe we ought to get rid of that model 
and realize this was a burp, as you put it, and inflation anxiety is going to die down. Bond stock correlation is going to go negative and we can be happy with our 60-40 or 70-30 portfolio again. Yeah. That's that's the optimistic view anyway, and it's something we'll definitely be looking at in, in these markets. Yes. So far, though, to begin the year, stocks down, bonds down. Yeah. P- pretty simple. Yes. Well, I did mention at the top, Apple's been one of the big losers uh, so far in, in the few trading days we've had this Mag year. Mag 7 generally, percent. right? They've all, none yeah. of they, they haven't behaved well at all. No, it's not been a great start to the year for uh, most of the Mag 7. And I think there's, you know, we came into... 2024, having in recent years seen kind of both sides of, of the MAG-7, yes. uh, we saw in 2020 and 2021 during the kind of, you know, the, the go-go mania of the of the immediate uh, lockdown era where everyone's at home and has stimulus checks, uh, the MAG-7 went absolutely crazy uh, alongside most of the market, but it was, it was led very much by these tech stocks. Then the second that interest rates started to go up or, or that threat began to materialize, they got absolutely crushed. Like Meadow was down like 70% at, at the absolute worst. Mm. And then, you know, we entered kind of a weirder era as inflation and interest rates began to level off a bit. Big tech became kind of defensive. It, it became, you know, yes. the place that you would go when you weren't totally sure about things. And that was clearest after, a, you know, Silicon Valley Bank failed. Big tech outperformed the market and continued to do so for, for some amount of time. Uh, despite the uncertainty in, in the broader economy. Yes. I mean, th- th- these are all kind of very different profiles yeah. for, for these stocks. I mean, I, I think a great question for the year to come is this. What exactly are the Magnificent Seven? Not think about them individually, what their businesses are, what differentiating factors there are among them. But as an asset class, which is clearly how Wall Street treats them at this point, what are they? Growth stocks? Are they a momentum play? Are they defensive? Uh, are they an interest rate play? We all know these stocks are tremendously important. We all know they've delivered a disproportionate amount of returns of the total stock market return over recent years. But what are these things? What are they in their essence? I want to ask, yeah. hearkening back to my training in graduate school in philosophy. What are they <laughs> in themselves? Uh, and I don't, I really don't know the answer to that question. I mean, the weird thing about them, right, is that like in general, the stocks that have a lot of like growth potential in 10 years are not supposed to be very profitable today. Yes. And that that is not the case with most of the MAG-7. Yes. These stocks have the the one-two punch of being both ridiculously, absurdly profitable right today now. and also having totally plausible double-digit growth potential for years and years to come. Yeah. That is just like a feature you don't see in most stocks. Although we have, we've had a couple of analyst downgrades of Apple mm-hmm. this week, people saying maybe the growth picture isn't so rosy. On the other hand, though, to, to channel our colleague Elaine Moore, how many times have people predicted, you know, peak smartphone saturation and, and it just never comes and Apple's rolling out the, you know, sexy new VR headsets. If Apple smartphone sales finally peak and start to roll over, my prediction from about 2014 will finally be correct and I will be vindicated. <laughs> <laughs> no. Not wrong, just early. <laughs> just early. <laughs> it's just 10 years early. <laughs> On the Unhedged podcast, we aim to be both wrong and early. That's, it's, 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 the, it's the hardest thing to do, actually. Yeah, it's, exactly. it's harder than being right. <laughs> On that note, we'll be back in just a second with Long Short. 
we recognize that there's real risk to recession in the coming year. If you looked at the CBO baseline, deficits as a percent of GDP get to about 8%, which is a deterioration from where we are now. Today, we're at around 5 6%. But the CBO doesn't have a recession built into that forecast. Think about what has happened over sort of the last few recessions. The fiscal authorities always step in. To hear more about potential impacts of our increasing federal debt level, Subscribe to PGIM's The Outthinking Investor in your favorite podcast app. Welcome back. This is Long Short, that part of the show where we go long a thing we love, short a thing we hate. Rob, I'm feeling short commercial real estate. And, you know, Ooh. unlike most of the market. Now that which calls I feel like late. Spent, you should have been short yeah. commercial real estate three years ago. You had made a bundle. I know. I know. And he, he, here's how I feel, right? In 2023, the market, I would say, was like drastically, drastically short commercial real estate. A bunch of re- you know real estate ETFs sold off like crazy. Yeah. People were freaking out, and and some people thought it could be a potential crisis catalyst. And you know, we were really in the camp that this doesn't look like a crisis in the making. There's a lot of structural features mm-hmm. that insulate the broader economy from problems in commercial real estate. And in the, in the meantime, the market has kind of changed its tune, and you're seeing regional banks and and real estate ETFs kind of bounce back. Mm-hmm. I think that maybe overdone potentially. And and there could be a kind of, you know, market correction in the wrong direction at this point. Uh. Because the problems in commercial real estate are, they're not catastrophic. It's not going to bring down the economy, I think, but they're they're real problems, right? Remote work remains uh, a feature of the way that that we do business. Higher interest rates are still around. We're not going back to zero. We're at 4% on the 10-year. And people built way too many apartments in certain markets right after the COVID boom, especially in places like Miami and and the Sunbelt. Those are, are going to come home to roost and they're going to be investors taking losses. I think you're going to see more of that start to materialize this year, even again, if it's not a catastrophe for the whole economy. Yeah. Well, I have an extremely tentative long. I looked yesterday for yesterday's newsletter. I looked at Alibaba, which for a long time was a, you know, a darling global company. It was the, the leader in Chinese e-commerce a bit like China's Amazon, although their business models are slightly different. Uh, and it has had a horrible couple of years. The stock price has fallen like 75%. They had a reorganization plan to simplify what had become an extremely sprawling business. That seems to have come off the rails. Of course, we know that the Chinese Communist Party has not taken a f- very friendly attitude towards tech companies within China the story of Jack Ma, the founder's sort of uh, public shaming. It's well known at this point. But I wonder if now it's all been a bit overdone. If the Mm. company operationally can't get back on the rails and perhaps equally importantly, the party softens its view towards the tech industry a little bit in the year to come. Is Mm. it possible that it is the exact moment of maximum darkness for Alibaba and a tiny bit of light about its future might come through. And at those moments, stocks can really move. Yeah, for sure. Well, Rob, thanks for being here. Uh, We'll have you back very soon. And listeners, we'll be back in your feed on Tuesday with another episode of Unhedged. Catch you then. Unhedged is produced by Jake Harper and edited by Bryant Erstad. Our executive producer is Jacob Goldstein. We had additional help from Topher Forhez. Cheryl Brumley is the FT's global head of audio. 
Special thanks to Laura Clark, Alistair Mackey, Jacob Weisberg, and Jess Trulia. FT Premium subscribers can get the Unhedged newsletter for free. A 30-day free trial is available to everyone else. Just go to ft.com slash unhedgedoffer. I'm Ethan Wu. Thanks for listening. 